You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 110 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I am cold, Valerie. Cold, okay. (laughs) Actually, it's uh, very, very nippy down here on the south coast this morning. Even Procrasty Pop is looking a little chilled in his fur coat. Oh. I know. Does he wear jackets? No. Valerie, he does not need jackets. Well, why not? He's just, you just said it was cold. Yeah, he's got more fluff than anybody ever requires. It's not, no, he's not a jacket-wearing dog. Really? My my pets wear jackets, even my cats. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have no words right here that will keep us in the, you know, not explicit section of the... <laughs> Of the podcasting universe. <laughs> Border Collies do not wear jackets, Valerie, all right? I bet you they do in some Country parts of Australia. Country dogs don't wear jackets. I bet you they do in some parts of Australia where it's very cold. If you have a Border Collie that wears a jacket, please tweet me. Yes, do tweet us and let and us know. And I will know. weep. I will weep. Okay. No. No judgment, Al. Oh, of course not. No yeah. judgment. Valerie won't judge you at all. <laughs> I won't. Um, anyway, we so want to we? We give a shout out to Blasty2. Oh. Uh, Blasty2 has left us a review on iTunes and has said, keep going, don't stop, I'm hooked. Oh. Bla- Blasty2 says, I've just listened to the first 100 episodes in eight weeks. Oh. <laughs> oh, you must be sick of the sound of our voices, Blasty2. <gasps> on my commute to work. <laughs> I'm hooked. Love the author interviews and writer's tips. A true inspiration. I feel like I need to go and write a book. Good. That's exactly what we were hoping for. I just, yeah. Hi, Blasty2. That's awesome, Blasty2. Thank you so much for sharing that uh, review with us. And we're thrilled to know that you're hooked and that you feel the need to go and write a book. Do write it because, and when you do, we will absolutely shout it out again in the And podcast. put us in the acknowledgements, okay? <laughs> yeah. I wrote this book after listening to Val and Al on high rotation for eight weeks. Oh. That's right. All right, let's move into. Oh no, wait, no, no, wait a minute. You need to tell us what you've been doing. I don't oh. know anything about you except that your cats wear jackets. And I also forgot to say, if anyone else would like to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, it only takes thirty seconds, and we'd really appreciate it because it really does help us in the rankings. It does. What um, have I been, been doing? doing? Yes. Goodness me, what have I been doing? I have been reading. Oh, yeah. So um, I've been reading a bunch of books and um, I'm at that stage now. And it's really, it's really stupid because it's, it's sort of like a testament to how lazy I am because my house is on three levels. So if, if a book isn't on the same level as me, I started (laughs) 
you don't read it. So what, have you got one on every level just yes. in case? Yes. So I start a new book. So at the moment I've got three books going at once. It's a little bit stressful. But really I should just carry the book around, shouldn't I? Well, yes. Or you, <laughs> I, I, no, I totally understand that. I tend to have books in different rooms for different purposes. I do, yes. I do tend to read a few books at once. Yeah, I don't like doing that though. I mean, well, I just find it quite interesting because what I find really interesting hmm. is that I'll have, say, two or three on the go, you know, I'll start them out. And then one of them, hopefully, will just grab me so much that I'll have to read that all the way to the end. So that's yes. why it's that whole thing. And then you sort of start to think, well, why, why that one? And I have to say that one that I've read recently that not only grabbed me, but really stayed with me and has stayed with me is a book called An Isolated Incident by Emily Maguire. And I chose oh, yeah. it for this month's Pink Fibro Book Club um, because I'd heard good things about it and I saw it on social media. So there you go, social media sells books. Mm. Um, and so I chose it for the book club and we have like 800 members. So I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, what they thought of this because I have to say it was one of the most interesting narrative voices, particularly for a crime sort of style book that I have read in a really long time and it has stayed with me. It's a really, really interesting perspective on a crime novel and the narrative voice is so good. Mm. Don't you love it when you get that book that hooks you in that you carry it around to all levels of the house? Yes. Yeah, yes, love that. I do. I really do. Mm. So, right. yes, I have been reading and making incremental progress through my various books. Excellent. Yes, there you go. Good start. <laughs> so let's now move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. All right. So let's start with, this is an oldie but a goodie. I came upon it the other day and I thought, yes, this, which it's good. We know we should mention this, even though it's a couple of years old. It's from The Right Life and it's by Chuck Sambuccino or Sambuccino. And it's The Worst Ways to Begin Your Novel, Advice from Literary Agents. Yes. And I really like this because they it does outline some of the worst ways to begin your novel. And some of them start with um, uh, things like starting too slowly. Mm. Um, and one of the agents says, characters that are moving around doing little things, but essentially nothing, washing dishes and thinking. Staring out the window and thinking, tying shoes and thinking. <laughs> so that's one that I do see sometimes in manuscripts. Also, prologues. Uh, some of the agents have said most agents hate prologues. Just make the first chapter relevant and well-written. Now, this is interesting because I actually have a prologue mm -hmm. in the first book of the Mapmaker Chronicles. It starts with a prologue, um, which is an interesting thing. But the second two books do not. They start right, you know, in the middle of the action in chapter, you know, chapter one. Um, and I would not have a prologue unless I absolutely needed a prologue. And I did need a prologue. You know, it's one of the – I just think that that kind of blanket yes. statement about that sort of thing is, is a really – you know, it's interesting. Most agents hate them and I get that. But, you know, in the right place and with the right story, you, you need a prologue. There's no getting around it. So I think that um, – you know, I think it's like all advice. You need to take these things. You've got to write the story that you've got to write. Yeah. Um, and you've got to think about think about this. Okay, most agents hate them. Does your story absolutely need a prologue? Well, if it absolutely needs one, then I think it has to stay. 
Yeah, sure. And mm. also related to that is backstory. And one yes. of the agents has said, I'm turned off when a writer feels the need to fill in all the backstory before starting the story. A story that opens on the protagonist's mental reflection of their situation is a red flag. So mm. um, <laughs> this is a bizarre one. In a Christian novel, um, I'm not sure whether many people read many Christian novels who are our listeners, but uh, one agent has said, a rape scene in a Christian novel in the first chapter is not a good. Chapter. Is not a good way to start. I'm like, yeah, I think. I like. Um, I personally like this one, which is um, I, is from Laurie McLean, who's from Forward Literary Ag- uh, Agency. I dislike Endra's laundry list character dis- descriptions. For example, she had eyes the colour of a summer sky and long blonde hair that fell in ringlets past her shoulders. Her petite nose was the perfect size for her heart-shaped face. Mm-hmm. Her azure dress with the empire waist and long tight sleeves sported tiny pearl buttons down the bodice. And so it goes on. As mm-hmm. Laurie says, who cares? Work it into the story. Oh, that is so true. <laughs> and I do read manuscripts that do that as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find find at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au. And the next link on our list is five things I wish every author knew from HuffPost Books. And it's written by someone called uh, Brooke Warner, who is a publisher. And she wants the five things that she wishes every author knew is, number one, your first book won't make you any money or bring you fame. (laughs) Really? And And she says, I don't start with this to be a downer as much as to encourage you, especially if you're just starting to keep your eye on the long term vision. Because, you know, it's usually the ensuing books that make it happen. And um, she also says, number two, getting published will change your life, but maybe not in the way that you think. You know, because it's, 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 um, it's a game changer for certain people in terms of like, you know, if you're a, a, especially if you're a nonfiction author, I think that it can really propel you into a position of expertise. But when you are a novelist or a memoirist, you know, a fiction writer, it it changes your life because it gives you credibility, but it doesn't suddenly get you every speaking gig in the world like it might for a nonfiction writer, I would say. Well, that's right. And I think the other thing with that is, you know, I think that people think, I mean, getting published is the brass ring, particularly if you want a traditional publishing deal. Mm. So, you know, you work so hard towards that and then you get there and then your book comes out. And I think there's an idea before you get published that somehow, I, I guess that the best way that I can describe it is that life just goes on yeah. and you're still washing up and you're still chasing your kids. <laughs> And you're still doing all those things. And every once in a while, I just want to say to my children, don't you know who I am? (laughs) And they just, you know, would laugh at me because they should. But it it is that sort of thing. It's like, you know, yes, here I am in my glamorous published author life doing all the things that I did before I was a glamorous published author. And I think that's that's something that really – and it's like I've said before, you know – I, I honestly, I still say that the day that your book comes out is one of the biggest anticlimaxes in the whole mm. universe, which is why I just feel like you need that, you know, you need that online stuff going on so that you feel like you're doing something yeah. because otherwise it's just so weird. It just hits the shelves and there's nothing, no parade. <laughs> There's also one that I love. There are many paths to getting published and what worked for someone else might not be what works for you. 
So I think sometimes we often quiz other people, how did you get published? What was that path? And you try and follow mm. that exact path. And that just mm. may not be the path for you. I think it's important to try lots of different ways and keep your, uh, your, your mind open to lots of different pathways to publishing and try them all and not say, oh, that just because JK Rowling did it that way, I should do it that way. Or just because Graham Simpson did it that way, I should do it that way. It's just, it's not going to work necessarily. No, that's right. So let's move on to our next link, which is um, how to turn your off writing days into on days, mm-hmm. which, I, which is actually also by the same writer, Brooke oh, Warner. two. Yes, two. Go, by Brooke. And uh, I think that this actually relates to um, our working writer's tip, which we usually do a bit later in the show, but we might bring it forward, Al. Okay, because... Val. <laughs> <laughs> let's do that. I've got a bad feeling I'm not going to like this, but okay, Val, let's bring it forward. Yeah. What have you it's, got for us? Well, it's a great question from Amy Suter-Clark, and she says, Hi, Valerie and Alison. Thank you so much for the time and effort you put into your weekly podcast. I get something new out of every episode, and I've always really enjoyed listening to you two talk about writing, reading, and life in general. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Amy says, I often hear you talk about people who struggle to make time to write. I actually have a different problem. While there's no doubt that I could make time to write in my life, we all can, right? The problem is, the problem I have is sustaining creative energy. Mm. I work as a full-time copywriter in a marketing department, so I write all day. Between my commute and work, I'm gone from about 7am to 7pm every day. By the time I get home, I feel like I just can't bear to sit in front of a screen anymore. I get up at 5.30am to exercise before work, but I feel like I really can't get up any earlier than that to have time to write. When I did NaNoWriMo, I was able to write every day, even with this schedule, but I think it was because I knew it was only for a one-month period, and I barely saw my husband at all during that time. Obviously, not something I could do all the time. So that's the situation, but I know I'm not the only one who's in it. I know Alison writes both fiction and corporate work, so I guess I'm just wondering, how do you maintain your creative energy, and do you have any advice for writers who write both fiction and corporate-type writing? for how to fill up the well of creativity after it's been drained all day. There you go. Is that over to you, Al, <laughs> right there? Have you just lobbed that entire thing at me? You're right. so clever. Taking a deep breath. Okay, yes. so two things going on here. I think that um, when it comes to doing sort of corporate-style writing versus fiction, I tend to approach those with sort of different sections of my brain anyway. So for me, switching between the two of those is – it's almost like it's like if I'm doing corporate work and I find myself, you know, I get to a point where I've lost track or I'm not able to kind of on board brainless possibly. Um, what I do is I will take a break by working on some fiction because it just that helps to refill my creative well, if you know what I'm saying, it takes me back to the more sort of uh, pedestrian writing with, with ease. So I, I do that by switching between projects. So I get that... Um, Amy's got like this long period of time where she's got to do the one thing. But for me, it's a little bit like, I guess when I sit down at night to write, I don't put pressure on myself to go, I've got to write a thousand words or I need to do anything like that. I sit down with the idea that I'm going to write something 
And the idea is also that I don't wait for the creativity to, to come. I assume the muse is in the car park. I think we've talked about this before. She's stuck in traffic. She's not coming. Mm. So I start without her and I usually find that by writing my way into it, um, before I know it, an hour's gone past and I have a thousand words. I don't I don't press it though, because if if if, if it's four hundred words and I'm waiting through concrete, I go, you know what? Four hundred words is four hundred words and I walk away from it at that point. Because I think if you sit there and you try to push it too hard, get down something, but then if it's too difficult, walk away from it. Unless there's a time pressure on what you're doing, unless you've got to have that novel finished by Friday, <laughs> then there's no reason that you have to set a word count. Like um NaNoWriMo works beautifully for a lot of people because of the graph and things like that. But as we've discussed before, I never, ever win NaNoWriMo. I do not aim to win. I aim to have more words by the end of the month than I started with. Mm. And I think if you sort of work your whole writing life like that, then it's an easier way to to do it. I I know lots of people are like, I sit down until I write 2,000 words, but that's not how I operate. Because the creative well, as you say, is a strange thing. I also think that maybe... Um, like Amy's getting up at 5.30 to do her exercise, which is great. I'm just wondering if maybe she moved, maybe is there a lunch hour where she could take a walk instead of getting up at 5.30 to do her exercise and she could write for half an hour in the morning instead. You or know, write get in it, your lunch hour. Or write in your lunch hour, get it done, you know, earlier in the day so that you're not coming home and feeling exhausted. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, it's that, and maybe on the commute, like if you're not doing anything mm. better. I know this is not about, you know, squeezing it in because she's made the point that she can make the time but you need to find the way that your creativity is going to go with you and it's not always at your desk and this is you know this is the other thing we've talked about is the importance of that thinking time so you know if you're sitting on the train and you're you know on your phone or you're doing whatever it is you do put it away um sit there stare out the window have a think it that kind of you know meditative thing is incredibly um soothing for your creative psyche and so you may find that by the time you get home then you've got something to say that you're ready to go after dinner and after you've you know spent four minutes with your husband um so it's it's a matter of working out when your creative how your creativity works mine is is late night and it works really well for me like that because it's just kind of that's just the way it's always I'm an insomniac. It's the way I go. Um, If it's not how it works for you, have a little look at is there a way that you can rearrange your day slightly um, so that you can either do it in the morning and get it done and when you're alert and awake or, you know, at lunchtime or in some other way um, and take the pressure off yourself to write the thousand words or whatever it is that you're thinking that you need to do. It's it's not a race. I think Mm. that's the thing to remember. Um, and oh, and on that note, if anyone's interested, um, I am starting this. Uh, what day are we on? So, first of June, which I think is today that the podcast comes out. I'm starting a new uh, manuscript, and as usual, I'll be posting with the hashtag on Facebook, write a book with Al, just posting daily, you know, word counts and things like that. If anybody, because other people find it motivating, so they join in with me and then they post their word counts. And it's not, this is, again, this is not about we're trying to write 50,000 words. This is nothing like that. This is just Al's writing a book. Do you want to join me? And it's as simple as that. Where do we find you you on Facebook? Uh, You'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. And, um, yeah, I'll just be, it's it's very casual. This is not a... (laughs) 
<laughs> this is not a, you know, serious Olympic challenge. This is just a, I'm starting a new manuscript and if you'd like to share with me that journey, then please do. That is a great idea. And I agree with all of Al's points. And I think that the key thing is that you just need to, you, you need discipline. And um, you don't, as Al said, you don't necessarily need to put the pressure in yourself to create a thousand words or two thousand words, but you just need to start. Whether you write thirty words or four hundred words or two thousand right. words, it doesn't matter. It's and you like, turn up regularly. And yes. then if you turn up regularly, even if you're only adding two hundred and fifty words, yeah. turning up regularly builds that. It's like a, you know, it's like a savings. Thing. Well, it's, it's like, like a- when you really don't want to go to the gym, but you make yourself go and you do feel fantastic afterwards. Afterwards. Invariably. Yes, absolutely. You know, and you might not put in all your effort that particular day, but you turned up, you went to the gym and you got something out of it. That's right. And I think a couple of other things, um, you know, on your points, Al, is that I was interviewing an author once who, you know, he worked in a marketing department as well. I'm not sure whether his job was a copywriter, but he definitely worked in a marketing department. And he used to just go to his car and sit in the car at lunchtime and write then. And mm. and just because that was him turning up to the gym, if you knew what, if I know what, if you know what yeah. I mean. And yeah. also uh, last year when I judged the short story competition, the winner uh, didn't actually have a lot of time. She, she was on the tools all the time. She was a cleaner. She was an amazing writer. But because she spent all her time cleaning, you know, vacuuming, mopping, whatever, she did that thing when what you were talking about of staring out the window when you're on the train thinking about her characters, deciding on her plot points and actually formulating all of the stories in her brain so that when she got off the tools and sat down to write, it was she didn't have to think of all of that. It had already been yeah. thought of. Well, look at Sue Whiting. We spoke to Sue Whiting in the last episode mm. of our podcast who wrote an entire middle-grade novel in 20 minutes a day on the train on her way to work. And that's all she did. And she wrote it longhand Mm. and she just did 20 minutes a day. And there was no pressure of I must do X number of words. She just fitted that 20 minutes in when she could. And this is, again, we're not talking about how, you know, making time to write, but that 20 minutes of, of, you know, intensive creative energy in the morning there might be just what you need. And then, you know, it's done. And then you can go and do mm. your corporate work. And then if you feel like it, you can go back to it. But if you don't, well, you've done 20 minutes that day and you've yep. got some stuff down and you'll feel better about that. Yeah, just turn right. up. Turn All up. right. So let's move on to uh, our next post about blogs. This is a post that was in the New York Post this week. My mummy blog ruined my life. <laughs> And it's about Josie Denise who shut down her blog, American Mama. And basically she was saying that she shut it down because it made her non-present with her children and not really enjoying life because in order to monetize her blog, she was taking sponsorships and, you know, working with brands, the usual thing. But she found, even though she was making money from it, that she then had to incorporate Friday night dinner to take photos and, and create the story for that sponsored post. Or she had to go on uh, a trip, a weekend trip with the kids, but instead of it actually enjoying the trip, she was creating posts about it and making sure she had the right Instagram pics and all of that kind of stuff. So she's decided instead that she's going to shut down her blog so that she's going so that she can actually <laughs> live her life instead of the. Um, uh, creating the false life <laughs> she she recreated online, she says. Poor Josie. <laughs> poor, poor, poor Josie. Josie's had a major flounce. I, the thing that gets me about 
you know, this kind of thing. And we get these posts, like you would see a mummy blog ruin my life post at least once a year. It's like an yes. annual thing. Yes. Somebody writes one and everybody gets up in arms about it and whatever. But it's just all, I, you know what I don't understand about it? Like, what? you know what? Shut your blog down. Okay, great. Why make a massive deal out of it? Like, why... Yeah. Why dismiss the work that everybody else is doing? Because it didn't work out. You know, you weren't happy. It wasn't working for you. I, I, I just find this kind of, like this is this has probably got more clicks on her blog than anything else she'll, she's ever done, and she'll be back in three months, and you know we'll all just go, "You're right." So, That's so I, true. I just go, "Okay, Josie." Very sad. But, you know, I think, you know, some of what she says is probably true for some bloggers, mm. but I think that there's just a lot of people out there blogging their family lives, making a bit of money on the side, and they're perfectly happy with, with what's going on, and I think good luck to them. So yeah. Josie should also say good luck to them, it's not for me, and shut her blog down. Exactly. Hmm. Well said, Al. Well right. said. All Look right. me. I'm having a moment here. I know. I think you did have a moment. <laughs> but let's move on to our giveaway this week. It's, it's a month of memoirs and we've got a memoir mega pack. So this competition is open all month and you get to win five books, which are all memoirs. Entries close on the 27th of June and you just go to writerscentre.com.au slash win in order to enter and the five memoirs that you can win are The Media and the Massacre by Sonia Vomard, excellent book, One Foot on the Podium by Don Elgin with Kevin Maloney, Truths, Half-Truths and Little White Lies by Nick Frost, In Other Words by Jhumpa Lahiri and Eat, Pray, Love, Made Me Do It, Life Journeys Inspired by the best-selling memoir, with an introduction by Elizabeth Gilbert. So just go to writerscentercomau slash win in order to enter. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our Stage 2 Creative Writing course, Advanced Fiction Writing Techniques, will help you apply proven methods to your own writing, taking your storytelling to a whole new level. With workshopping and practical exercises focusing on scene development, characters, climax and resolution, it's your perfect next step. Learn online over a few hours each week. You'll even get your own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash advanced. All right, Al, shall we continue with our word of the week? Oh, let's, please. <laughs> Lay it on me. This isn't that uncommon. People do use it, but it is avuncular. A-V-U-N-C-U-L-A-R, avuncular. Hmm. Do you know what it is? Do you know, I, I do know what it is because I'm looking at the definition that you've written for me here, <laughs> but I have to say that I would not have known what it was until I saw the definition that you have written for me here because I don't know what I thought it was, but I don't think it was like that. I thought it was just kind of like a um, cheerful sort of... A warm word. Yeah, I knew it was a kind of a, yeah, but yeah, I didn't, yeah. yeah. Okay, come on, tell yes. us. Well, I, when I first heard this word, my friend was working was describing an older gentleman that she worked with, and she said, "Oh, he's very avuncular." So it's an adjective that means like an uncle. Mm. 
Uh, and when I met her colleague, Tim, his name was, it made total oh, sense. Yes. So because he was very kind towards her, you know, he looked out for her. He was, you know, probably 15 years, 20 years, maybe older than her and was her boss. Um, and he was avuncular. And it's important to note that it's not some kind of creepy uncle kind of reference. It's actually a positive <laughs> word. So you might say he had an avuncular approach to his new staff, say. So that's avuncular there you go now there we can go. all sleep uh, yes and i'm really looking forward to the blog posts that reference avuncular <laughs> yes for those of you who are doing the word of the week in your own blog posts uh make sure you ping us on social media so that we can see how you've used it all right who is dun, 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 our writer in residence this week al well this week i had the great pleasure of interviewing um my friend Anna Spargo Ryan, whose first novel, The Paper House, is out today. And um, Anna and I know each other quite well, which you will hear in this interview. I just need to let you know that because there, you know, she's, <laughs> we know each other well. There's a fair bit of sarcasm going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is the most beautiful writer. And I remember we met actually at a pro blogger conference, you know, years ago. Um, and I, she had stood out even at that point because her blog posts were so beautiful. Yeah. She wrote these blog posts and just the sentences and you would read them and go, oh, my God, I wish I'd written that. Yep. Um, and then, of course, uh, so we actually, when she was writing this novel, the first draft of this novel, um, we s- spoke to each other on a weekly basis so that I could, uh, shall we say, cheerlead her through it. So I dragged her through the first draft um, mm-hmm which she even says in the acknowledgements. I have a whole paragraph. I just like to point that out in case anyone misses that. You should read the acknowledgements. They're beautifully written. Yeah. Um, but, yes, yeah, so we, you know, this this novel has been, you know, working around for, uh, you know, she's been working on it for several years and it is just wonderful. It's so beautiful. And I, um, it's getting amazingly good reviews, which is brilliant. And so we had a little chat about that and writing and, you know, what surprised you most about publishing. And um, we had a lovely time, actually. Anna Spargo Ryan is a writer and digital strategist based in Melbourne. She writes about brains and love and people and family and food and creativity. Her work has been published by or is forthcoming from Black Ink, The Guardian, Overland, Kill Your Darling, Seizure, Daily Life, The Age, The ABC and many other places. Anna's first novel, The Paper House, is out now through Picador. Welcome to the program, Anna. Thanks, Alison. Um, so, first of all, I just have to apologise because I sound as though I'm talking to you from an echo chamber. I'm in my empty office and uh, let's just say we need a bit more furniture to absorb the sound. <laughs> but let's talk about you. So, how did you okay. come to... Yeah, let's go on. How <laughs> if did you want. You... I mean, you can do the interview by yourself. I, I could. I could do that, couldn't I? But that yeah. would probably not really be much of a point. Mind you, I could probably talk about, you know, by myself for half an hour. <laughs> Let's not go there. I believe in you. Let's not. All right. Oh, let's talk about me, though. Let's talk about you. How yeah. did you come to write fiction in the first place? Like, have you always been a writer? Uh, yes. So I'm one of those very irritating writers who has been writing stories since she was, like, a stupid age, like four. And uh, it's something that has always been compelling for me, like a way to process and express the kinds of things that I'm feeling. And I, I always have done that. So uh, the first book that I remember writing was about a dolphin and it was, you know, the dolphin I went in the sea and it was in the sea and then I made it into a book shaped like a dolphin as well. So 
Nice <laughs> marketing. I know. I know. Well, yes. When I was about five and six, I really fancied myself as a children's writer and illustrator. Mm. Uh, but I later found out that I'm a terrible, terrible drawer. So that was off the cards. But I've always wanted to be a writer and I've always written stories. Fiction, I took some time away from writing fiction when my children were smaller. It didn't, I didn't have the kind of creative imagination for it amongst all the other things that I was trying to do, like sleep. Mm-hmm. and and go outside ever and eat and so those. So I, uh, I didn't write fiction for probably, I reckon probably eight years I didn't write any. Uh-huh. And then I said, when I was doing NaNoWriMo in 2012 with you, I said to my partner who I had then been with for five years by then, I said, I've always wanted to be a writer. And he said to me, I've never seen you write. <laughs> really? That, that actually really surprises me. Like yeah. I, I thought you would be one of those people writing angsty poetry, you know, all the time from the age of six, you know, all through the childbirthing thing and everything, but no. No, I wrote a blog. I've been blogging since like the mid to late 90s. So I was writing a lot of angsty blog posts and I did blog throughout my pregnancies and about my stuff after them and pictures of my children and things. But, um, and this is going back to the, early 2000s but I didn't do any creative writing uh, for all that time and then I wrote a newsletter at work which was you know and that's gripping sort of stuff but uh, when I sent it people said to me the writing in this is really good uh, but it's about superannuation (laughs) (laughs) you know you're a writer when you can make superannuation beautiful and that's what I said to them I was like well I mean I've always wanted to be a writer and uh, that was sort of, that gave me a renewed interest that I hadn't had since my children were born, where I was just so tired that the idea of trying to also come up with a story was just so far beyond me. Uh, and then once I started writing fiction again, I couldn't stop. And now I just do it all the time. So so that was, so 2012, you thought, I'm going to write a novel, and you yeah. sat down to write a novel during NaNoWriMo. Yes. And is that the novel that is being published Sort of. Yeah. I I started writing it in 2012. I did about, I think we all failed pretty dismally that year. I did about <laughs> 15,000 words, I think. Um, and it was pretty good like when I went back and read it. And even when I've gone back and read it now, it's not bad, but it wasn't quite the story I was trying to tell. So I put that in the bin and then I started again in 2013. And that was when I really wrote it. So I wrote most of it in November of that year and then finished it off in December and sent it to my agent or the person who became my agent in February, which everybody should never do because your book is not finished. (laughs) If you write it in December and send it in February, it's, uh, yeah, its bones are showing, let's say. And yet here we are. Mm, Yes, well, yes. On the shelves. How exciting. It was just so excellent that it was hard for them to pass up. Oh, but clearly, yeah, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I then spent two years. She's very it. modest, Anna. Very, yeah. very modest, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm known for. Yes, of course. Yeah. So let's talk about your writing process then. If you're doing NaNoWriMo, have you done much planning before you sit down to write this thing or are you just sort of writing in fragments or are you writing from beginning to end? How do you go about the actual writing process of the book? I don't do very much planning. So I'm definitely not a planner, as they say. I'm much more leaning towards being a pantser. Mm. Yes. Um, but 
I sort of do planning as I go along. So I do write quite a lot in fragments. I have different scenes that will occur to me that I write then separately and know that later on they might show up in the book, uh, which is helpful not just to get the words down but also to understand the characters and the story better. So some of that stuff doesn't end up in the book but it's still been useful in terms of understanding what the book is for and what it's about. So that gets me to a point where I will get 25,000 words into the book and think, I have absolutely no idea what's happening. I should probably figure it out before I go further because then I just veer off and I have to then do a U-turn and come back to where I kind of (laughs) verged away from what I was actually trying to do and start again anyway. So I'm a a big fan of, you know, A1 cardboard sheets that I then draw all over in different colours and do mind maps and do character profiles and stuff, Uh, but it's, it's more as I go than at the start. Uh, and I tend to write pretty much from start to finish, but then have these little bits that come in just, and they sort of appear out of nowhere. They're the ones where, you, you know, you're driving along, driving the kids to school or something, and it just suddenly occurs to you that this thing should happen. Mm. Um, and they come out. A lot of those that have remained in this first book came out the same way that they appear in the final book. They're just, those are those kinds of, grabs that like ethereal come through you and you have to get them out before you forget them and they're sort of perfect the way they are Mm. like a self-contained little bit of writing so I was always grateful for those but they rarely fit where I needed them to at that time they were more like yeah something that was going to happen later that I had to then try to piece together So when you sat down to write the paper house or what became the paper house did you know what it was about before you started or did you have like in the sense of I'm going to write a book about this or did you um start with a character like where did you start that process did you start with a character an opening line what did you start with I started with this garden so it's sort of got a magical garden in it and I knew that I wanted to have this garden and I the epigraph is one of the first things that I wrote down which is actually a quote from the secret garden Mm. and that was where I started so I knew I had this garden the garden was going to represent something and then I had characters in it that were going to be affected by the garden Uh, the character of the husband in the book is the first one that I really understood properly I think and yeah surprises me does it well I thought it might have been her you know what I mean (laughs) yeah she's changed quite a bit Mm. actually throughout I had this husband who's always been called Dave from the very that first NaNoWriMo in 2012 that I chucked in the bin the only bit I really retained from it was him and he has been the same throughout the whole process whereas the other characters have sort of come and gone a bit um so I knew I had him and I knew I had a garden and then I had to figure out what I was going to do with them I knew that the woman in it Heather the main character was going to be affected by some kind of traumatic experience but I didn't quite know what it was mm. so then I had a really fun process of just trying to brainstorm heaps of horrible things that could happen <laughs> 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 um, and once I had that figured out it gave me a bit more structure but the end story is even quite different from the one that I originally had sent to the publisher or that my agent had sent to the publisher, uh, that I had to rethink the story in it quite a bit. I knew what it was about much more than I knew how it sort of happened, how I realised that aboutness of it. 
So the so the, so you had the theme and the the characters and things, but the actual story itself yeah. took a bit more work. Yeah, and I would say that's probably true of most of the writing that I do. I have I often start with characters, so I've written lots of stories where one character has just occurred to me, or I've seen someone on the street who's made me think of some sort of. Uh, and I was reading something the other day where someone said, "I don't think that's a character. I think that's a person." And it's not actually a character until you have a story to put them into. And I think that's what I do. I sort of conceive of these people mm-hmm. and they're in some way based on someone I know or someone I've seen or something I've seen or some interaction that I've been involved in. And then I have to come up with a way of putting a story around what I know of this person. So I'm writing a story that's taking a very long time about a man who loses his wife at sea. Mm-hmm. And I know that he wants to get his wife back. And I know what his motivation is and I know all about him, but I don't know what the story is. And that happens to me a lot. <laughs> like, how do I get this person from what I know about them to what I know about where they want to go? How do I connect those two things together? So, um, And does that take is, is that process, as you say, that's taking a while. Does that process, just, does it sort of take a, I'm going to try this track and see how it goes and, oh, that's not quite right, so then I'm going to go back and try this track and... Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, so one thing that everyone agrees about your writing, and I know this because I've seen it everywhere, and it's not just about your, it's not just your fiction, but your blog posts and your tweets half the time, is that it is absolutely beautiful. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It's lyrical and poetic, and it's like right down to where the full stops go. So, yep. are you a person who agonises for days over word choice, or is this something that just sort of comes out of you like this? It sounds so bad, but it really does just come out like that. Mm. It's, that doesn't uh, I, sound bad. That sounds good. Well, I mean, it's good for me. Mm, positive. It's not very useful for other people, <laughs> actually. Just uh, just think poetically and then mm. it will come out like this. Just vomit um, poetically onto the page. <laughs> Beautiful. You just, like, use poetry in your whole life and live as a poet and you can just write poetry like this. Yeah, great. Yeah. It's, um, look, I actually, interestingly for me, I don't know if anyone else will find this interesting, I'm doing a poetic subject at uni at the moment. And all the stuff that we're learning about is stuff that I do in my writing but didn't realise it was poetics, that it had kind of poetic theory around it. Wow. Um, So I think that just comes from reading a lot of poetic literature generally over the course of my life. Like I've always read a lot of magic realism and stuff that's heavily uh, allegorical or metaphorical and that kind of thing. And that's what I really like. And the other part of it is that I think – um, mental illness is most easily explained through metaphor. I think it's it's hard to use abstract words and ideas to describe uh, the way that it feels in a common a common way. Like here's a way that everybody can relate to. I think using poetics and concrete language is a much easier way of relating the experience of mental illness to other people so that's been part of it as well how can I explain this in a way that people are going to understand what I mean without actually saying I feel like dying like I feel like dying doesn't mean anything but when you can put some metaphorical and concrete language around it you you give people an experience that they can relate to that is specific to them so yeah um that was a different sort of question that I answered myself. That you no, didn't. no, that was a very good question. But what you've just done is ruined my next two questions because now I don't know which order to ask them to. Oh, so I'm, so sorry. I'm just gonna, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna stick to my schedule, um, and we'll go. We'll come back to the mental health because that is something I do want to talk to you about. But I just want to finish this little journey we're going on with your poetry and your literary stuff. Um, 
So two things that I wanted to ask you is, so have you, you know, have you always wanted, have you set out to write literary fiction, capital L, rather than sort of genre or more commercial white? Is that what you've always wanted to write or is that just how it comes out so that's how, that's what you write? I didn't know until a couple of years ago what literary fiction really was, I don't think. So I had read, I, I mean, I used to read a very wide range of different things and I like try to now but I just don't manage to find time uh but I didn't understand the distinction between commercial fiction and literary fiction and I mean in some ways still don't really understand the distinction but uh the even the commercial fiction that I was reading I was much more drawn to literary leaning commercial fiction which they sometimes call high-end commercial fiction which is a terrible way to describe it because it's not better uh, but it's just more literary. It's got it's more thematic, or it's got more poetic language in it, or it's you know all these things. And I was already more leaning towards that anyway. And so I think really a lot of what makes my writing literary, in the sense that it's being published by a literary fiction publisher, is that that's what I've always read. So I was just writing the kind of stuff that I liked reading, mm. which happened to be that. Mm. I didn't set out to. I mean. I have always said that critical acclaim is more desirable to me than commercial acclaim. But having said that, I didn't say I want to write a book that, you know, is a literary fiction book that people are going to take very seriously. It was more I want to write a book that I think is beautiful and that I would like to read and that happens to be what I like reading. Okay. Yeah. So um, one more question of, along those lines before we mm. go to the mental health because I realised I actually had two, not just one. Um, do, we... do you find um, one of the biggest challenges of, you know, writing and is, is actually just letting go of the work? Like when you, when you are trying to write something that you're proud of and you're trying to write something that's, you know, important to you, do you find letting go of it difficult? Sometimes. And I think that... The trap for me is ruining it by not being able to let go of it. So trying to make it better than it is to a point where I actually go backwards and make it worse than it was. And sometimes I'll go back and read the original iteration of something and think this is so much better than what I ended up with because, Mm. you know, I've chucked it out in kind of the way that it came out and then I've tried to... Uh, I guess, intellectualise it Mm. and sometimes that ruins it. Uh, I found letting go of – so I've only written one novel to the end of this one, you know, to the very end. I did find letting go of that very hard. Once it was finished and I couldn't edit it anymore, I suddenly found so many things in it that I wanted to change and then I just thought you could just do this forever. Mm. You could really just go back and back and back to your novel and fix all the th- and it would come out as a completely different novel um because you would have changed absolutely everything in it and I I find it difficult to do things in the middle. So I do a lot of stuff once and a lot of the features and things that I write are first drafts so I'll do it once properly or beat it to death right but I find it hard to find a middle ground of like I'll do a first version and then I'll take what's good from it and I'll make a better second and third version and then I'll stop and actually give it to someone who needs it instead of you know deliberating over it forever Mm. um and my my dad often just rings me with that da Vinci quote 
I think misattributed, but Da Vinci quote about how art is never finished, it's just abandoned. And I have to do that with a lot of my writing, actually. Just abandon it at this point. It's probably fine. It needs (laughs) to go somewhere else now. Um, And also just that as an emerging writer now, I need to be able to get more and more stuff out. If I only, you know, if I labor over something for 10 years, I'm not, you get to a point where you stop learning from it, I think. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've, if you've been doing it for two years in conjunction with a publisher or with an editor or as part of a PhD or whatever, you're still learning about what you're doing. But once once it's separate from the market and you've been removed from the market for a long time, I think you stop learning about you know, what's going on around the place with writing and with, you know, other other things that other people are doing and being a visible writer and all of these things that contribute to learning about writing overall. You sort of take yourself out of it if you spend a lot of time just destroying yourself over whether or not something is perfect. So tell us then what surprised you most about the publishing process? like with regards to all of those sorts of things? Because I know, you know, with publishing, there's a lot of backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and carrying on with Mm. books. Was there anything that surprised you about that process? You had always said to me, publishing's really slow. (laughs) And I was like, well, how slow can it really be? And it really is slow. It's slower than you can imagine. I mean, it really, I learned so much from the process, but, the main thing I learned was that it is incredibly slow moving and a lot of stuff has to happen. And I mean, reading takes time and writing takes time and I can understand to a, uh, to some degree why it all takes so long, but I had to learn a lot about being able to persevere through that kind of, that kind of slowness. So I think what I mostly got out of it was learning that about myself, that actually um, even though each time I got a structural edit back and I did a lot of structural edits, each time one came back, I felt like I just couldn't do it anymore, that I had got to the end of my ability to, to change this piece of writing and that I didn't have anything left in me. I'd like drained my reserves of writing and then I did it anyway and that was a fantastic thing for me to learn about the publishing experience was that it was, it was about seeing it through to the end, which I hadn't expected. I sort of, because I sold my book quite quickly, you know, I signed with my agent two months after I finished essentially the first draft and then we sold it about six weeks after that. It was just uh, incredibly fast, really, yeah, for anybody. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, I mean, I was so smug. I was like oh, this is so easy. I don't know why everybody doesn't do this. It's just so straightforward. <laughs> and then uh, it took forever then after that. I then edited it with the publisher for two years. And it's a much, much better book for it. But I didn't expect that at the start. I thought it was going to be, you know, my book's basically done. And other people, other writers seem to have these stories. Some of them do. Mm. That it's basically done. We need to do one structural edit and then it will be finished. And then we can, you know, put it into the copy edit and then off it goes. And that was what I expected it to be like. I didn't expect it to almost be an apprenticeship in novel writing. Mm. Like I had such great insight and guidance from these really excellent editors who helped me to understand what my weaknesses were, where I could improve, what my strengths were as well and how I could sort of highlight them and um, just the volume of stuff that I got out of it. Then when I sat down to write my next book, 
it all came out. Like the, the stuff that I had learned was all there. And I would write something and then think, oh, no, last time I wrote that I had to spend three months fixing it, so maybe I won't write that this part. <laughs> so and you that, are changing things. You are going about so. writing this in a different way. Slightly differently, yeah. Yeah, cool. Okay. Mm. All right, now we're going to get to the mental health section that we talked about getting to about 10 minutes ago. Um, You've become, you know, something of an advocate and commentator on mental health issues. You've had many well-received articles. I've seen viral blog posts, which is very (laughs) exciting, about your experiences. And you also co-host an acclaimed podcast called The Exile. I said that. I called it acclaimed. I know. Well, I just think we should, you know, we should (laughs) disseminate that message, don't you? It's acclaimed. (laughs) Podcast called The Anxiety Shut yeah, In I have acclaimed my own podcast, The Anxiety Shut In Well, I'm, yes. a, I'm acclaiming it now too, so that makes oh, two great. of us. Yeah, Thank you. so it's doubly acclaimed. Excellent. So how has that all evolved? Like is that something – did you – is that something that you – is it just that you you decided you, you couldn't keep quiet on this stuff or is it a position that you took or is it just something – like how has it all come about? Yeah, it's a weird one because for a long time I didn't talk about mental health at all. And I've had anxiety and depression since I was a teenager, at least. Um, and it, I was embarrassed by it for a long time. And I remember when I had to tell my parents about it because I, 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 there was something we were doing that I just didn't feel like I could do because of my anxiety. And I sort of felt like I had to come out to them about it and really confess to having a mental illness. And um, it wasn't something that I felt good about at all for a long time. And then I, when I started writing again in 2012, I, it was quite a difficult period for me mentally. And so mental illness was one of the kind of only things that I could think to write about. I was so consumed by how bad I felt that when I, when I then sat down to write, that was what came out. Mm. And then people started to really relate to it. And I sort of then realized that, there weren't that many people talking about it and that the people who were talking about it were maybe not doing it in a way that people found that was empathetic or relatable or a lot of the feedback that I started to get on the writing I was doing was that, you know, I've always tried to explain this to my family or to my husband or to my children or my friends or whatever. I haven't been able to articulate it. But what you've said is exactly how I feel. So now I can just give them your article And um, that was really affirming. And then I sort of started to feel like, well, actually, maybe I am contributing some value, not just not just lamenting how bad I feel, but actually giving other people a tool to be able to talk about it themselves and within their own communities. Um, And that seemed I don't know, that seemed like a valuable thing to do, like a good way to spend my time. Uh, in a way that was helpful for other people. So that's what I did. And then, I mean, after that, people started approaching me for articles about mental health and I then became quite wary of becoming, like, mental girl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Here's it's <Anna>. mental girl. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't have a cape because she's too sad. And, you know, she but... should have one to hide behind. Come on. <laughs> Just an invisibility cloak. Don't yes. look at me. Um, yeah. <laughs> But I, so I didn't want to become known only for writing about mental health. That was very important to me. But mm. I was glad that it was useful to other people. And also I find it quite, now that now that I've sort of let everybody know that that's what I am, that I am a person who has depression and a person who has anxiety and this kind of thing, now I enjoy writing about it 
it's a good way for me to process stuff. It's a really cathartic kind of thing for me to do. So um, as I said at the beginning, writing has always had that kind of effect for me to uh, process stuff and to let mm. stuff out and that's still what it does. So to write about the mental health stuff does have that sort of impact on me. It makes me feel lighter to let some of it out. If I didn't write about it, I think it would all just kind of be crunched up inside me and that's mm. probably not very good. Um, no, and then the podcast was actually that my friend Erin Van Crimpen, who is my co-host on that, she had a dream. We didn't really know each other then either. She just, I only knew her on Twitter and she had a dream that we started a podcast called The Anxiety Shut-In Hour and she tweeted to me and said, ha-ha, I had this dream, we started this podcast. And I said, well why don't we do it though and so we did <laughs> and that's really the whole story <laughs> and we didn't know each other we didn't so know Twitter, we... amazing oh twitter is i mean if i could live inside twitter then i would but <laughs> her, we didn't know if we had any sort of chemistry or whether we could really have anything to say or whether we knew what we were doing at all but luckily we do and it's been a really positive experience for both of us i think terrific yeah all right, so, yeah, you've been blogging since you were a child and, yes. as you said, you would live in Twitter if you could. So you have a strong online presence, shall we say, a very strong online presence. Do you mean um, annoying and loud? Sorry? That, do you mean annoying and loud? Is that what you mean no, by strong? No, just solid. solid. Oh, say solid. solid, yeah. Okay. Solid. Is it something that you spend a lot of time on, I guess would be the question <laughs> I must ask. Do you actually live in Twitter? I do wonder sometimes. Yeah, yeah, of course I do. Oh, of course. That's the whole answer. I, uh, That's it, the whole answer? Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps you'd like to expand on that a little. I'm not a person at all. I'm an AI, like a, oh, a right. program that's running. <laughs> You're a bot. So, yeah, I am. That's right. The Anna bot. Yeah. Excellent. Was... You're very good. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, they, I mean, they could have programmed me to be a bit less, like, panicked and sad, but... Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty lifelike, I think. So you clearly do it because you really like it. I really do like it. I am a, I mean, as you said at the start in my bio that you read to me, I, I am a digital strategist. So my background is web development. And then because I'm also a writer, social media was a good combination of web development and tech stuff and writing. It's a really, I mean, it didn't exist when I, when I first started working as a web developer, but I was very glad that it came out of what was happening in digital marketing and mm-hmm. um, and just in the way that online communities were being built. And so I've been working in social media for about seven years, seven or eight years, and as a web developer for 15 years. And I have spent for my job most of the time on the internet. So um, almost all of my jobs the last five years have been on social media. So I spent my whole day on social media (laughs) and that is now just the way I function kind of. I can I can hear all those authors out there who hate social media just shuddering. It's just like this collective (laughs) So maybe maybe we can use that to assist some of our listeners because I know that there are a lot of people who are a little bit hesitant about the whole author platform thing. But what do you think are the three main things that you bring from your career as a digital strategist to your author platform? Like what are the three things that you sort of like, I don't know, use as the tenets of your platform? I think the one that I do 
across my author platform, which, I mean, is what it has become but not what I started out doing, I guess, mm. um, and also for all of my clients is the importance of authenticity in social media. So if you're someone who just goes on to self-promote or you're someone who just posts, you know, marketing material or someone who doesn't engage with an audience that's a social media failure. You will never succeed yeah. if all you do is go on and expect people to just kind of engage with your sales marketing channel. Mm. Um, that's not what it's for. I mean, social media is a community of people who have common interests or who have, you know, <laughs> things that they all want to complain about at the same time or just, you know, dank memes or whatever. Um, if you aren't someone who is sincere in your engagement in that community, the community won't care when you have something to promote to them. Mm. So for me, now that I have a book coming out, I think my community, it's still really irritating when people just post links to their, and I mean, I feel irritating every time I post a link to buy my book, but my community of people who I'm engaged with will tolerate more of it because I've cared about what they had to say before now. Mm. So I think and there that leads me into the next thing, which is not to start when your book comes out. Mm. <laughs> start building a platform well in advance of what you want to sell because it has the same issue then. Like here's my platform. I, you know, I signed up to Twitter yesterday and my book comes out next week. Mm. Where's my platform? Why aren't people retweeting my tweets about how to buy my book and that kind of thing? And that that's about that's it's the same that's about authenticity as well but it's about a slow burn you know if you don't build an audience organically then they are not going to care what you have to say mm. and that's about you know um thinking about it well in advance and then engaging with people that you are actually interested in talking to and then giving them a reason to care about what you're saying and so you need so I guess that leads me into the third thing, which is to offer good value. So if you're a person in social media and all you do is, you know, tweet about what you're having for breakfast or whatever, which I think people do less now. I but you used to you went through a phase of that. You had a whole blog related to what hey, you had for yeah, breakfast. That's I remember. That was a great blog. That was a great blog. It was, that, and that was because... I cared about your avocado on toast. <laughs> I did. Oh, thanks. The reason that I had that blog, which ties into this, is that I wanted to demonstrate that I had stuff to say and that I was a good writer, mm. but I didn't want to have to think about what I had to write every single time. So I thought, what's a way that I can have a blog but not have to come up with new material all the time? And so what I did was then go and eat breakfast, which is my... <laughs> favorite thing to do apart from eating chocolate well, which is your other favorite thing I have chocolate at breakfast so oh, yeah, you know um I'll tell you a story about it later uh <laughs> and, <laughs> so what I then had was a blog where I didn't have to come up with new stuff all the time but I could still demonstrate my writing chops and actually I got quite a lot of work out of that blog because it was funny and it was engaging and the photos were good and people could see that I was you know a, I was approaching it in a way that was valuable um and that might be as a as a social media user you might contribute value in all kinds of ways so you might be someone who curates other people's content so you're someone like asha wolf who just re repurposes and curates 
and cultivates a community of people who want information from, you know, different industry bodies and from reporters and from people on the ground and you're, then you become almost a news source or you're someone who is funny and engaging or you're someone who writes beautiful things or you're someone who, you know, has a lot of recipes or you're but whatever you are, that you're not someone who posts links to themselves all the time. That's not valuable mm. unless you're contributing value in other ways. So, I foresee a proliferation of emerging author breakfast blogs. I don't know <laughs> how you feel about that. Oh, great honour. <laughs> I found look, I found like three breakfast places I really love and I just go to them now so I can't do it anymore oh, because see. I go through this grieving process of I went to this new place but I really wish I had gone to the place that I know that I love so I can't <laughs> do it anymore but I really like their hash browns. <laughs> yeah. All right, so um, I guess then the other question is because you do have a family and you also yes. have a job, you have to make a living and do all those things. How do you fit it all in? How do you make it work? So my mum is also a person who has jobs and things to do and a family. Um, and she said to me when I was starting to try to sort of forge my way as a writer, she said to me, the thing that you have to remember is that if you try to do everything at the same time, then you won't do any of it well. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't mean not trying to have it all or any of that, you know, that kind of crap that gets posted on terrible websites. But <laughs> <laughs> but that actually in an hour, just do one thing. Mm. You know, like if you have to do stuff with if you have to do stuff with your family, <gasps> if you're obligated by law to do stuff with <laughs> have to speak to them at least once a day (laughs) but just do that Mm. and then if you're writing just do that and if you're working just do that and what I had been trying to do was write around my children or write Mm. you know while they were then there was a you know I would write for a period of time where they would be sitting in my office shouting at me and I'd be like why isn't any of this writing very good (laughs) because your children are shouting at you And then I would try to do my real work and writing at the same time. So I'd go, you know, I'd do 10 minutes of work and then try to write 200 words and then, and it was all jumbled up. And I, the only way I ever managed to get actual stuff done was to separate them and to go, I'm just not going to do writing for the next six hours because I have to get this work done or because I have to go to a parent teacher night or I have to, and I had to separate it all out. Mm. And that was probably the best advice she ever has given me, except the other bit of advice she's given me, which is to be a, and this is related to social media as well, is to forge sincere relationships with people at the start because they're the people that you'll be standing next to at the top Mm. and that peer support. And I think that's what social media is about. But um, that otherwise, this is the best bit of advice she's ever given to me. And she's an incredibly successful woman. It's because she like treats each thing as a discreet thing to do Mm. instead of trying to do them all at the same time. time. And when my children were little, that meant that I couldn't write at all because I just was too tired and they demanded too much of me. So I didn't. Mm. Um, and I was like, I was sad. Not, I felt like my arm had fallen off, but it meant that I didn't, you know, just have a nervous breakdown because I couldn't do everything at the same time. Um, so yeah, I categorize mm-hmm. now. That's very, yeah. very good advice. Thanks and, very much. Anna's mom. Oh, oh, thanks my mum. Yeah. And also the other thing I did was get divorced. Oh. <laughs> Okay, we're probably not going to recommend that as a necessary thing. No, it's not necessary, but Mm. it does mean that I have half of my week where my children are not here. Oh, 
and that has actually made (laughs) I hope my children never listen to this because I love them dearly but it does mean that for half the week I have time to write fair enough yeah there's some interesting advice (laughs) from Asperger is that the first time anyone's ever recommended getting divorced uh podcast might might be yeah might be just yeah. trying to think back. There might have been one other. I'm just I'm not exactly sure. It's been 108 of them now, you know. It's a bit hard to keep <laughs> track. I've recommended divorce before now. Okay. <laughs> Someone's bound to have. <laughs> All right. So we're going to finish up today uh, with our, you know, famous, I'm going to call them famous, a bit like your acclaimed podcast. <laughs> I'm going to call them our famous uh, three tips for aspiring writers. So what have you got for us, Anna? I know you've prepared. I, I actually have written words in a pen. Oh. Yeah. The first one I have is uh, the villain. You'll know this one. The villain is always the hero of his own story. Oh, now this was excellent advice that was given to me in a moment of crisis. I believe I rang you from the University of Wollongong going, I can't get this right. What am I doing? And we had the conversation and it all became clear. Mm. Perfect. Thank you. Yep. And then the second bit of advice that I always, because I mean, people ask this a lot. No offence. The second bit of advice that I always have is that writing is not for wizards. It's not like a secret club. And I spent a lot of time worrying about whether I could be a successful writer if I didn't have, you know, like the code word. Mm, The key. The key. What? How do I get in? How do I get in? And I'd be standing at the edge of the, you know, writer's dome going, I don't know how to get into the writer's dome. When actually. (laughs) Bagging on the glass. Face pressed up. That's not how it works. So how does it work? Well, and so my third one is that you just unfortunately have to do it. And I hate it when people, and I wrote a whole thing about this the other week. I hate it when people, writers say, you just have to get on with it, but you really do. Mm. The only way that you get writing done is to literally write the words down. And, you know, it's, you can spend a lot of time lamenting not being writing or not being a writer and it makes absolutely no difference. You know, just got to get on with it. And now that my book is coming out, a lot of people have kind of come to me and said, oh, you did it. How did, you know, like I've, I've always wanted to do it or I'm really, I'm so jealous that you have a book coming out. And you're just so kind of, lucky. Yeah, you're so lucky. And writing has nothing to do, I'm making like a weird thing with my hands right I now. I nothing, <laughs> nothing to do with luck and very much everything to do with perseverance. Mm. And it's hard. And the thing is that it's hard. So it's easy to stop. It's so easy to stop writing, to just go, this is too hard. Um, So the bit that actually gets the work done is perseverance. So true. Mm, So villain, wizards, perseverance. We could, we could totally write a fantasy novel about this. We're on to something here. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Anna. It's been a lovely interview. I think, you know, possibly one of the more entertaining we've had ever, of course, <laughs> goes without saying. Oh, yeah, I mean, mm, clearly, yeah. I can't okay. believe I'm speaking to the Al Tate. Oh. <laughs> the so one exciting of, for me, the, the one, one and only AL slash Alison. Look, I've had to sit here and listen to you now for 41 minutes, so. <laughs> I know. I'll give you for a kickback. All right. Thank you so much, Anna. And best of luck. The Paper House is out now and it's receiving extremely excellent reviews and there's a lot of talk about it. So you should get yourself a copy and have a read. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
Anna is an amazing writer, isn't she? I mean, she's just, uh, I mean, I remember reading her blog posts from years ago thinking there's something special about this girl. And I would just like to say that in the acknowledgements, she says, Alison Tate, whose contribution I cannot overstate for talking me through the total devilish nightmare (laughs) that is attempting to write any kind of complete work of fiction and for taking time out of every week to beat me into something resembling a person who could do it. So good on you, Al, as well. Oh, isn't that so sweet? I was just, I was chuffed. Very sweet. I remember, you know, Anna first came to my attention because she's done a few courses at the Australian Writers' Centre and then I started reading her blog and I just thought that's it, she's going to go places. Fantastic and great Mm. interview as well. Mm. Let's move on then to our platform building tip this week. As we know, as authors, we need to build our author platforms. Very important these days, particularly if you want to sell your books. Mm, So true. (laughs) What question do we have this week? Well, this is an interesting one because I um, I was on Twitter, as I I am, and I had tweeted um, a little tweet saying that, you know, I've finally, you know, joined Instagram in a serious and meaningful way and, um, you know, join me. And I got a tweet back and I don't exactly remember who it came from, so apologies. I, I did have a quick squeal back to see if I could find it, but I couldn't. It was basically, um, in summary, how can you add another platform? How do you keep up? And I thought it was quite an interesting one because I think people do sort of, you know, look, I guess, at me with my Twitter and my Facebook and my uh, I do some G+, and I have... Um, Pinterest, you know, a bit of that going on and, and they've, you know, now that now there I am on Instagram and they probably go, I don't know how she does, you know, how do, how could you possibly do all that? And as I tweeted back, it's important to remember like that I've been on Twitter now for nearly seven years. Um, so that, that sort of is a platform that I'm really familiar with. I know how it works. I know, um, I know how to schedule. I know how to do all the things that you need to do to kind of keep that ticking over beautifully. Facebook is very similar. I've been there for a long time. And I guess my, my main tip here is to do these things. I have added these things one at a time. And I think that that's the most important thing I can say to any author is to choose one to start with, get to know it, understand it, see how it works, see if you like it, how it works for you. And then once you're comfortable with that and you know, you know you've know, you got a fairly good handle, you can kind of keep up with it relatively easily, then add something else. Mm. Then do another thing, you know, try something else. Because you do, I, like what I have found is that, um, I mean, obviously there's crossover in your community, but you do find different people on different platforms for different reasons. And mm. um, the important thing is not to try to do it all at once because if you try to do it all at once, you will go nuts. Um, trying to learn a whole lot of new platforms all in one hit oh, yeah, is no. just crazy. So, yeah. you know, get your website set up and then choose one platform and get to know it well, add another, add another. I mean, Instagram, I, I started that a couple of years ago, as we've discussed, and then I just decided that, you know, it wasn't for me. And now I'm sort of, I'm back in there and I can, I sort of have, I've got a better idea how it works now. So yeah. I can use it in a different way. And I think that that's important to, to understand how each community on each platform likes to operate. So yeah. that's how I do it. That's how I keep up. I do one thing at a time and I learn how it works and the best way for me to use it. And then I, um, I also learn how to schedule things and that's important too. Yeah. 
And I also think that uh, I agree with you, learn it one thing at a time because it's just silly to do it all at once. But when you do learn it, after you have learned it, you will then know, you know what, this particular post that I've posted on Instagram, I'm going to, this is ideal for Facebook as well. I've got different community there. So I'm going to feed that into Facebook at the touch of a button. You don't actually need to repost it onto Facebook and write a whole new other thing. You can just do it at the touch of a button through the Instagram app. So it's it's not like it's double the work. In fact, you can be really efficient with it once you know what works on each platform. Yes. So that and many other platform building tips, of course, are available in Alison's course, How to Build Your Author Platform. And you can find out more on that at writerscentercomau slash platform. So that brings us almost to the end of this week's episode. What have you got coming up, Al? Well, apart from my write a book with Al, um, you know, manuscript thing that I'm starting (laughs) on Wednesday, which is going to keep me busy, um, I'm also nearly finished. You'll be very excited, Valerie. I'm nearly finished with the um, How to Make Time to Write course. I know. And I'm so excited about it. I've just honestly... um, yeah, I've found I, I've been uh, going back through all our podcasts and so much gold information in those, um, and I'm utilising some of that in the course. So I'm doing that, and I've also the other thing I thought might be of interest to our listeners is that um, I've got a new Facebook group that I started a few weeks ago. It's called Your Kids Next Read, and it's a group um, specifically for you know parents, carers, whatever, if you're looking for a kid's birthday present, whatever. Um, it's, a, it's specifically about children's literature and it's about, you know, my kid likes X, what should they read next? And um, that might sound like a strange group, but it's actually going absolute gangbusters because there wow. are so many parents out there who've got these kids who are reading and there's always that thing of what can I, you know, because you want to encourage it. What yes. can I give them that's similar? What can I give them that's the next step? And um, I'm running the group with the lovely Megan Daly, who is a teacher librarian, and she has a fabulous blog called Children's Books Daily. So the two of us together um, are are putting together this this group, and it seems to have really filled a lovely need because it's – I think we've got – we've been going about 10 days and we've got about 350 members. So um, if you'd like to join us, just, uh, you know, search your kids next read um, and ask for an invitation to join the group. And I This is on Facebook? On Facebook, yes. Okay, awesome. What about you, Val? What are you doing? What about me? I'm actually quoting on a couple of different writing slash editing gigs this week, so that should be fun to see whether they come off. And um, this week, well, maybe not this whole week, maybe today really, I'm doing really exciting things like invoicing and chasing up invoices because, you know, got to happen <laughs> we well, got to dedicate some time to admin for some we do and you should probably do a working writer's tip next week about tax and admin because i know how much <laughs> you like those well i'm not getting very good response from them so if you know people don't want to hear about my tax tips for writers then i, then I won't should. subject people to them no i think it's like medicine i think it's really important <laughs> but you're just gonna you're just gonna have to add that spoonful of sugar in there somewhere <laughs> oh god just to help us you know take it in all right it is for your own good it's i do it out of love I know. We know that. that. It's all from love. All right. So where do we find you online, Al? Uh, You will find me at alisontate.com. You will find me on 
Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. You'll find me on Facebook at Alison Tate Writer and on Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And yes. you, uh, Yeah, hit us up on social media. You'll find us, you'll find me at Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O, on Twitter and on Instagram. Just search for Valerie Koo on uh, Facebook and you should find me. And... Um, is that all I do? What about Snapchat? <laughs> How are you going I've, with this? How I'm, are you going I'm with pretty Snapchat? hopeless with the Snapchat lately, but I really need to get back onto it. But if you are on Snapchat and a few people are and you've been messaging me, thank you. I am the Valerie Koo, so hit me up on that. But until next week, have a great week in the world of publishing and writing and blogging, and we look forward to chatting to you again in a week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.